Hello and welcome to another Office Hours podcast. I'm Kevin. I'm Aaron. And we are here continuing our discussion on preparing for funding. Now, last week we talked about incorporation, right, versus. Aaron? Well, incorporation versus formation, right? Or a corporation versus an LLC. Right. I was trying to say incorporation. Got it. When you say incorporation, do you incorporate an LLC? No. You form an LLC. I agree. Yeah. I think people use that inconsistently, yeah. even erroneously. But we talked about corporations versus LLCs and why with the recent tax rules and previous experience, uh, we think a corporation is probably the best entity choice for just about any startup. But small business owners, if you're not going to be a traditional startup, you probably want to talk to a, an attorney and a CPA to see which is the best entity for you. But today, let's really hone in on startups, Aaron, and talk about founders agreements. Okay. okay, let's do it. I don't mean a specific document labeled founders agreements, but I mean the initial documents that founders are going to sign to help understand what their roles are in the organization, vesting, confidentiality, assignment of IP. And then I also want to mention uh, right of first refusal and founder stock. All right. So those are the topics we want to cover today. So Aaron, let's say we have a startup. We got three founders come into the room. They bring us their idea. They've got a spreadsheet which shows that the revenues are going from $0 today to hundreds of millions of dollars in two years. Billions. Right. Sometimes billions. And we ask, okay, great. What's the agreement between the three of you guys? What are the responses we typically get? Uh, what do you mean? <laughs> no, no, that, yeah, exactly. That is, that right. is the response. Or if I say, okay, how are you guys splitting up the equity? What do they say? We each own a third. Exactly. And then I say, okay, great. What are you guys contributing for that third? Well, I'm going to do work on the project. Jimmy had the idea, and this guy, this other guy knows a ton of people, so he's going <laughs> right. to get us to those right. millions and billions of revenue. This is exactly what happens. Now, these same three founders come back to our office three months later. Now what's happened? One of them is probably gone. Right. Jimmy's not doing. Jimmy walked away with a third of the company <laughs> right. because they didn't invest his stock. And the other guys, all the investors that he knew just met his dad, and his dad wasn't interested in their start. Yeah. And and now the remaining two founders are fighting. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that is very typical or typical to the way things used to be around this office. That doesn't happen anymore because we don't let people walk out of our office without understanding. So let's take a step back. So we got three founders. I think this is a perfect example or scenario to use for our podcast today. Three founders, they each own a third. It is critical. It is critical that each of those guys agrees to one to three things. One, vesting. Everyone must vest their ownership. We'll get into specifics in a second. Second, confidentiality, meaning that we're not going to share whatever we're discussing or any breakthrough technology or ideas that we might have. And then third, well, oh, share outside the company. Share outside yeah, the company, yeah. exactly, yeah. correct. And then third, assignment of intellectual property. We want to make sure that the company owns the intellectual property. And Aaron, and I have some real specific examples on that. So let's talk about vesting, Aaron. What's a traditional... Well, explain what it means. Yeah. And then what's a traditional vesting schedule? So vesting is just the mechanism by which basically lock somebody in to being at the company for a given amount of time in order for them to get their full amount of equity. You'll say, okay, you get 10,000 shares of the company. They're vesting over four years. Well, that just means that at the end of the first year, you'll have 25%. At the end of the second year, you'll have 50%. At the end of the third year, 75%. And at the end of the fourth year, all 100% of those 10,000 shares. Now, vesting isn't something that's new to startups. I mean, option plans have been doing this forever. Any of you work for large companies or you have spouses or family members who, who do, I'm sure that their options vest over time. Like Aaron said, it's a way of incentivizing your employees and making sure they don't leave. Now, with early stage companies... 
we call it vesting or most people call it vesting. It's actually not vesting. You want to explain that part, yeah, it's, Aaron? It's the basically the opposite of vesting. So early on when a company is worth zero, it's really easy to grant equity to founders and early stage employees through what's called a restricted stock purchase agreement. And what that does is it enables the founder to purchase stock from the company at usually at par value or a little bit more than par value. Par value is what you declare to the state when you're incorporating what the minimum amount that you can sell a share of stock is. So you can buy it at par value because the company's not worth anything. And then you buy the full amount and then the company has the right to repurchase some of those shares or all of those shares depending on if and when that founder leaves the company. Okay, great. So let's sidebar on the value of the stock on day one. Because if you're looking at some publicly traded company, you can go look online and see what the value of their stock is. But when we just incorporated Nuco, so these three founders came in here, Aaron, and they're going to incorporate Nuco. And we're going to usually we start 10 million shares. That's just the the standard in the venture community. Well, Nuco is not worth anything. Yeah, It's worth zero. I mean, maybe it's worth a couple thousand dollars you paid to the attorney to get the docs up and going. But that's it. So the shares are worth, they have 10 million shares. They're worth fractions and fractions and fractions of a cent. Usually you say they're worth 0.30s or 0.40s one, right? So like that's one ten thousandth or one one hundred thousandth of a cent. So they have some nominal value. Now contrast that with a company that's two years down the road and the shares are worth a dollar each. You can't just go giving people shares for a dollar because that looks like compensation. It looks like you're paying them or you're giving them something of value. There's tax effects. But back to the startup, the three founders. So in our scenario, let's just assume they're all getting 3,333,333 shares, right? Third each. And then they're going to have some nominal value. So the total value is going to be 33 bucks or $333, depending on how many zeros you put in, point of the, in front of the one. That is the value of the shares. Now, like Aaron said, we're going to have them buy. It's best if they buy those shares. They should put a uh, submit a check to the company for that amount and, and deposit it and keep a record of that check. So they're buying it for that amount, but the company will have the right to repurchase them over time. This is sometimes known as a release schedule. So it's used interchangeably with a vesting schedule, but technically, like Aaron said, it's the opposite of vesting because you own all the shares first. And then these shares get released from the company's repurchase option as you hit your milestones, which are almost always time-based. So Aaron, what's the typical time-based milestones for a uh, early stage company? Yeah, the most typical vesting schedule is going to be for your vesting with a one-year cliff. What that means is the full 100% vests over four years, but none of it vests until you've been at the company for a year. So you you work for nine months and you quit, you don't get anything. You work for 13 months, you get 25%. Plus, after that first year cliff, it's typically monthly vesting. So 25% vests after the first year, and then one forty-eight vests over each month for the next 36 months. Right. Because the first 1248s have been done through that 25%. Right. So it's this does it make sure that no one leaves too early. And then once you get, do get past that one year cliff, everyone's on a monthly vesting schedule, which is pretty typical for the industry. Now, people will come in and try and accelerate that or change that. If they do that, and let's just say they say, no, we have these great ideas. We've got so much experience and we were so valuable. We're going to have a one year vesting schedule. When we get to a Series A round, what's going to happen? Uh, the investor is going to ask them to vest their stock. 
for an appropriate time period based on how old the company is. Right. So let's just say none of the stock was vesting or restricted and we get and we're two years down the road and we do a series A round, they're gonna put a two year vesting schedule on that. So exactly. just do it right. It sets you up for future investment, but most importantly, it protects I don't want to say it protects you from your other founders. It just protects you from founder issues. This happens all the time when founders get crossways and now you have a guy who's going to just threaten to pick up, take his ball and go home, and he's walking out with a third of the company. Even if you do a full four-year vest at the beginning and say now you're six years down the road and you, your stock is fully vested, it's not uncommon to see investors in later stage rounds say, okay, I want you to revest your stock or revest a portion of your stock. Now, it's not going to be another four years, but it might be a year or two years. Absolutely. can revest that or maybe they grant you a few new options and ask you to vest those. Right. So very critical. Understand that there's a distinction between a restricted stock purchase agreement, which has a release schedule and full vesting. They are used interchangeably, but vesting is generally done with options. And then the release and the restricted schedule are usually done with earlier initial grants. It's also important to realize one of the key differences between an option to purchase and a restricted stock purchase agreement is that with the restricted stock purchase agreement, when when that founder or when that early stage employee gets that equity, they can vote that equity. Great point, Aaron. Yes, you own all that equity, which is important for voting, important for dividends. If there are any, they're probably not no. going to be, yeah. but also important for change of control right? right? or some sort of exit. Yeah. When we say change of control, we mean you're selling the business, which is generally a good thing. So yes, you own all those shares and that's important because you're you're voting a third, a third, a third. Okay, so that's vesting. Now, the next thing you want to be bound to is some sort of confidentiality agreement. And let's get through these, Aaron. Let's talk about what agreements we use to do this, right? Okay. So confidentiality agreement. The key thing here, it's pretty simple. You just want to make sure that someone doesn't take the idea and run with it, that it, they don't go outside the company and use it. So you want to say everything that's about this business, our business plan, our marketing materials, our customer list, our proprietary technology, our patent filings, trademarks, everything like that, that's going to be all be confidential and property of the company. And the founders and later on other employees or service providers will be expected to keep all of that information confidential. It's pretty straightforward, but this is something that people often overlook. And then they leave and then people say, well, that founder, he's out there blabbering about our idea or saying he's going to steal the idea. And we know, everyone knows that that was supposed to be this initial company's idea. We say, great, show us the agreement where he's restricted from using that. And we'll talk, we'll, you know, we, we can add a non-compete in here, which is kind of hard to get for early stage, but we'll talk about that. So that's confidentiality. Aaron, you want to talk about assignment of IP? Yeah, assignment of IP is important. I think it's probably most important with the founders because you're dealing with a group of people, two, three, four guys that have been working on this idea maybe before they started a company. And so they have all this knowledge and they've been talking about all the, these ideas back and forth before they have a company. Even after they form a company, all that know-how and knowledge they've been talking about before they got a company formed is in their head and technically belongs to them. You know, the, you know, the corporation doesn't have any right to say we own that intellectual property. So we need to, you know, have a document that says, okay, Founder A, all of the information that I have before uh, we started, we formed this company and and all of the intellectual property that I might create or come up with related to this company after the date of this belongs to the company. And this kind of goes hand in hand with the confidentiality agreement, right? right? So we get it into the company and then it's confidential. Where we see this come up most often is the domain name. In the example we've been using, these three co-founders come up to us and they say, 
we've got this great idea. And when they will ask them, do you have a domain name? Have you grabbed any Twitter handles? And almost always, yeah, they have. Or they've got a Facebook page going for it. But when one of the guys leaves, because they haven't incorporated yet, and they probably haven't signed any of these docs yet, right? That's what they're coming to us for. So if we don't have them sign founders agreements, when one of the guys leaves, he might have the domain name in his hands. And going to GoDaddy and saying, well, that guy left the company. I know he registered Acme.com, but that should be ours. GoDaddy's going to say, screw you. This guy bought it. He owns it. And that comes up all the time. So when you do sign your, your IP agreement, we call it a founder's IP assignment. Some people call it a confidential information and invention assignment agreement, or maybe some people call it an IP assignment agreement. They're the same thing, right? They have yeah. the exact same information in it, but people will call them. I've seen them called technology assignment agreements, TAAs, but it's just a way to get the confidentiality provision, get a confidentiality provision and get the IP into the company. Make sure you list the domain name. Like this person is specifically transferring the domain name. Okay, so let's talk about the agreements that we would use. So I talked a little bit about this. Again, you, people call it the CIIAA, Confidential Information Invention Assignment Agreement, or a Founders IP Assignment Agreement, or a Technology Assignment Agreement. They all cover the same thing. Hey, this is the IP that we might have created prior to forming the company. We are now agreeing to assign it. And anything else we do for the company, we're going to assign it. For the vesting, where does that come from, Aaron? Vesting is going to be in that restricted stock purchase agreement. It sets out what portion of the equity the company has the right to repurchase at what point. So it'll say a quarter of the restricted shares will be released from the repurchase schedule after one year. And then thereafter, one forty-eighth of the restricted shares will be released from the repurchase option each month thereafter, assuming continued service. And then because you're dealing with the issuance of securities, there's going to be some securities language and there are some disclosures that are pretty typical for any sort of a stock purchase agreement. And you recognize you are purchasing stock. It happens to be for some tiny nominal fraction of a cent value, but you're still purchasing stock. And that's important. Do you want to talk about 83B elections? Great idea. Yes. Yes. Why don't you get into that? Yeah. So in the uh, restricted stock purchase agreement, there will be at the end of it a section 83b election and what that is is 83b of the irs code long story short the irs will not tax you on equity that you own if that equity is subject to a substantial risk of forfeiture and what that means is if there's a chance you could lose it the irs isn't going to tax you on it so that the the company's repurchase option the quote-unquote vesting is a substantial risk of forfeiture so the comp the irs won't tax you on it until that has dissipated, gone away completely. So what you want to do well, is the you problem is the IRS has to know about it, right? Right. Yeah. So you want to let the IRS know, hey, I have this equity and I want to be taxed on it now because you want to be taxed at it at the lowest possible value. So that's what sets your basis. And without getting too tax law wonk on you, you want to be taxed at the lowest possible point so that as the value of the stock increases over time, all that increase in value is long-term capital gains to you rather than ordinary income. And so you want to make sure you let the IRS know, I have this and I want to be taxed on it now, even though you know you could leave the company before a year and walk away with nothing and you've already paid tax on the full amount. If you're paying tax on this equity, even if it's a third of the company, if you're buying it at close to par value, the tax implication to you is going to be so minimal that you might as well just pay it. You won't even notice it. Like Aaron said, the, if you don't do this, and then you get taxed on the fair market value of the stock at the time it gets released from the repurchase schedule or at the time it is vested, so to speak, 
then you might be ha- you might have significant tax consequences. And there are some horror stories out there of founders just getting into unicorn type companies, having restricted stock, and then a fourth of their equity vests in year four when the company's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And the IRS says, well, you were granted that stock at that valuation. And now you're going to pay ordinary income on that. So an 83B election allows you to tell the IRS, hey, look, this stock is is uh, has a substantial risk of forfeiture. That's the language the IRS uses. But I'm going ahead and claim it all as income now. I'm going to pay taxes on it now. And in the scenario we described, Aaron, if you pay $33 for stock that's worth $33, there's no tax consequences there, right? right? Yeah. So you bought it at par value. If the company just issued you the stock, let's just say it was $33 and you didn't pay on it, then that would be compensation, right? Right. And you'd have to pay tax on $33. But if you, that's another reason why you send in that check to evidence it for proper stock issuances, but also tell the IRS, hey, look, this, this stock was worth nothing. We only paid the lawyers a couple grand, maybe $33 in that example doesn't work, but you know, 500 bucks would work. You need to visit with your attorney. But an 83B election, very, very critical. Uh, we'll include some links to more on this in the show notes. But these will go along with any sort of restricted stock purchase agreement. Okay, so that's the RSPA, the Restricted Stock Purchase Agreement, and the Founders IP Agreement. The other thing that we sometimes see inside a Restricted Stock Purchase Agreement, or you now see in bylaws, is a right of first refusal. And a right of first refusal means if you're going to transfer your shares, who has the right to buy it? It's not uncommon for founders to come and say, well, there's three of us to reach a third, a third, a third. But if one of us goes away, we want to keep this stock in the founders, not have it go back to the company where it could be where it would be positively affecting the investors or the other option holders. So you could have some sort of right of first refusal that says if a founder is going to leave and the company's going to buy his stock back for $33 or whatever it was, then the other founders have that right first, which is, I think, okay for founders agreements. Yeah. Aaron, your thoughts on that? No, I, I think basically as founders get diluted, you want the founders to own a certain portion of the company so that they remain motivated. And if you want to make sure that, hey, this this pool of founders equity is always going to be in the founders' hands, then I have no problem with, with writing that out. So a right of first refusal is definitely something you want to discuss with your lawyers to see if it makes sense for you to include that in some of these early docs. And then the other thing I want to mention is founder stock. We get this request from time to time where people say, I want founder stock. And there's this notion of class F founder stock, which was put forth, I don't know, five or eight years ago by, I, I want to say it was founders fund, but I'm not sure. Someone put it out there and it basically said that it's very difficult to dilute. They get 10 to one voting rights. That means for every share of common stock, they get 10, or every share of founder stock, they get 10 votes, whereas common stock gets, common stock gets one vote. They had a right of first refusal in it. There's all this stuff. It was super protective founder stock, which is probably good if you're Mark Zuckerberg. But if you're Jimmy, the guy who knows a lot of investors in our example, you don't need founder stocks. You're just going to muddy things up. You're going to make it complicated for future investors. I've only done founder stock one time. Right? We've probably had it requested a, half, a couple dozen, two, three dozen times. I did it one time. It was a pretty seasoned investor. Well, you got to be, or excuse me, a pretty seasoned entrepreneur. You got to be a seasoned entrepreneur to even understand what it is. But this entrepreneur wasn't raising from traditional venture outlets. So that's why we were able to get away with it. But man, it always kind of muddied up the cap table. Yeah. And it's just, I like for my investors and my founders to be aligned. Yeah. And I get that, okay, well, you're going to make the argument that, well, no, the, the investors get preferred stock. And so we're not aligned. But at the end of the day, you should be demonstrating your value 
as a founder by you know what you're contributing to the company and how you're helping to grow it and trying to put in some sort of special founder stock that in, uh, you know entitles you to certain more favorable provisions than the regular common stock i don't think it's a good look it just has an icky feel to it yeah so if you want to discuss it with your attorney by all means do we're not big fans of it okay so to recap well before we recap i do want to mention one other thing and explain why it's not in here. One, the one thing we haven't talked about yet is a uh, non-compete clause, right? And you can sometimes loop a non-solicitation into that. The reason why you don't see a lot of non-compete clauses in these early documents is because there's probably not enough consideration there for them to be done. Now, it wouldn't hurt to get everyone under a non-compete, but the, the agreement we haven't discussed yet, because early stage companies generally don't have the money for them, is an employment agreement. Right. Now, once you get an employment agreement, a lot of the stuff goes into the employment agreement. Right. As we start hiring people, however far out from incorporation that is, they're going to have an employment agreement or some sort of services provider agreement. And you're going to have to pay them uh, unless you're unless you have a um, an exemption from that in Texas. If you own more than 20 percent of the business, you're not subject to minimum wage laws. But most of the time you are going to be subject to minimum wage laws. These are especially tricky in California to be very careful with that. But once you're paying someone, then you can get the confidentiality inside of the employment agreement. You can get the assignment of IP inside the employment agreement. You can get the non-compete, non-solicitation inside the employment agreement, and you'll generally grant them options, which will cover the vesting. Can you have a non-compete in California? I thought... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're right. No, I was just saying employment oh, agreements right. in California yeah. in general are difficult. Right. It, in California, you can only get a non-compete in connection with the sale of the business, That's correct. Right? That's, that's correct. So that's why you don't see a lot of non-competes or non-solicitations in early stage founders IP agreements, because what we don't want to do is invalidate the whole agreement, right? Right. If you have some sort of a non-compete in there. The other stuff, pretty typical. Um, we will talk probably not in this series of podcasts, but understanding the difference between an employee and an independent contractor, I believe we have some notes on that. So I will have, uh, we'll have our producer put that in the show notes. But that's why we didn't cover non-solicitation, non-compete. Okay, so to wrap it up, we have two primary agreements that early stage founders are going to use right after they incorporate the business. And one is going to be a restricted stock purchase agreement. And that's where the founders are going to buy their stock and then put it on a restriction or release schedule, similar to a vesting schedule. And then two, we're going to have some sort of a founder's IP assignment agreement. This gets the IP into the business and it gets uh, binds the founders to confidentiality. And the consideration for that IP founder's IP agreement is almost always the restricted stock that they're purchasing. So understand that those two go hand in hand. Okay, so that's the importance of founders agreements. Make sure that Jimmy doesn't run off with 33% of the company. Aaron, your closing thoughts? Make sure you paper everything. I mean, a lot of these things, again, goes back to even if you're not having an attorney drafted, if you're being very cost conscious and you don't have an attorney doing this for you, get something in writing just so that when everybody's happy and they have dollar signs in their eyes, get it in writing so that when inevitably somebody leaves or you get in a fight with your co-founders, you have a document to rely on. Okay, that's a great way to bring it back, Aaron. The overall theme here, guys, is we want you to be as prepared as possible for funding. We want to make sure that you have taken all the legal steps necessary so that when you go out and raise capital, legal will not be a hindrance. In fact, it'll be a bonus or a benefit because everything will be nice and tight and orderly. So have your founders agreements in place, the founders IP assignment and the RSPAs. We will talk more in the coming weeks. I think our next topic next weekend will be uh, friends and family investors. What do they mean? Where do you find them? And what do they need to sign? Okay. All right. Thank you very much for listening. 
In closing, you can always email us your thoughts, comments, or questions at podcast at VelaWoodLaw.com. You can check out our blog, VelaWoodLaw.com, for the show notes and links to other podcasts and similar content. You can also find the link for the show notes in the iTunes episode description. Also, let me mention I'm writing a series of blogs on the website called If I Were Starting a Business. A lot of the stuff is overlapping with what Aaron and I are discussing, but this is a much broader look at starting a business, not necessarily a startup. And finally, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. This is the Office Hours Podcast. Five stars. Five stars only. The Velawood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at